Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the Treat Us Right podcast. My name is David Williams and I am founder and CEO of Karen Health. In our last episode, I told the story of my son and his seizure, the experience we had, and how documenting his health experience on Karen changed the course of his care in an admittedly scary emergency. As a review, we were ready for this emergency situation because we had followed four key best practices for personal and family health information management. One, request a digital copy of your health records from your doctors. Your health data belongs to you by law, and they have to give it to you for free. Number two, save your family health information in one place. And you're going to want to use a HIPAA-compliant cloud service to consolidate all of this health information for each family member. Number three, chart your health experience. Whether that's daily or weekly is up to you and your needs. But it's because only you can describe what you are feeling. Capture it. Document it. This information is important and it does not exist in an electronic medical record. And number four, share your health experience with family and your care team. Family wants to be kept updated on your health status, especially when you have aging parents involved. Be ready for any health situation with Karen. Sign up free at yeskaren.com. In this episode of the Treatise Right podcast, we're checking in with none other than our good friend, advisor, and Karen Health investor, Dr. Jabari Reeves. For you regular listeners, you'll know that we talked to Dr. Reeves in the first week of March before the world completely changed and stay-in-place orders were put into effect. So now we're checking in to get his impressions of where we are and where do we go from here. Dr. Jabari Reeves was raised in East Palo Alto, California, and completed a BS in general science at Morehouse College. He is a board-certified emergency physician who received his master's in business administration concurrently with his medical degree from the Anderson School of Management at UCLA and the Charles Drew UCLA School of Medicine. Since finishing an emergency medicine residency at Alameda County Hospital in 2004, Dr. Reeves has worked in over 30 hospitals in California. He currently runs his own emergency physician locums company, placing doctors in understaffed hospitals across California. Dr. Reeves is also the founder and CEO of Health Media Services, a company specializing in bedside patient engagement tools. And he is also a chief medical advisor of Curie, a patented artificial intelligence mobile app that can detect respiratory distress from simple breathing. Dr. Reeves, welcome back to the Treat Us Right podcast. Uh, we're coming from Karen Health Home HQ. So you may hear noise in the background, uh, dogs barking, kids yelling. Uh, let's just roll with it. Welcome back. Yeah, hey, thanks, David. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I appreciate you uh, bringing me back on for another interview. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing? We're doing well. You know, it was an interesting challenge in the beginning, but we have settled in. The kids are now accustomed to their Zoom meetings. And fortunately, my wife is able to work from home as well. The biggest concern was my exposure of COVID-19 to them. Fortunately, the availability of PPE, my exposure has been limited. That's well. great to hear. In yeah. fact, I wanted you to get deeper on that since our first conversation in early March, you know, it was like March 5th and March 11th was the date that the world really changed sheltering in place orders were put into effect. What are the most significant changes you've seen since we've begun sheltering in place? I live in San Francisco, so we were the first county in the U.S. to start sheltering in place. So people are more aware of uh, personal space, the social distancing, 
people walking down the street. Um, you automatically uh, assume a posture of six feet in anticipation of walking past someone. And also just the fact that more people are working from home. And I think that that is something that uh, will continue even um, as restrictions are lifted. And that, that, that actually leads into the next question, which is with everybody staying at home and you being an emergency physician, what are you seeing as a result of sheltering in place? Well, overall, emergency room sentences are down 40% of what they used to be. So uh, the fact that people aren't out and about um, having emergencies is a huge factor in that. Uh, also, uh, folks are not coming to the emergency room for uh, minor problems because one, they are sheltering in place and two, a concern that you know that's where the sick people are. So my industry has taken a huge hit and hospitals in general have taken a huge hit. So places that I worked that uh, had four shifts a day for doctors are down to two or three emergency physicians, PAs, nurses are all being furloughed. So incomes are being affected. The business of um, the hospitals aren't compensating physicians and these uh, first uh, line essential employees appropriately. So that's uh, been a sad factor in all of this. You know, that's an insight that I think most people don't know. The media portrays the healthcare system as being completely overrun with COVID patients Your experience being in California, where the state really embraced social distancing, sheltering in place early, it seems to have had an impact on how emergency visits and hospitalizations have followed. Right. And so there are urban centers that are being overrun. So New Orleans, uh, Detroit, uh, in California, you have L.A. County, Santa Clara County is also seeing high numbers of patients. And in general, these are areas where there are you know, large minority populations, uh, and many of those folks are essential workers, but then they live in a home that's multi-generational. And mm-hmm. so going out and working, uh, getting exposed to COVID, and then coming back home and bringing uh, the illness home to their loved ones, who then have comorbidities that cause them to feel the illness more acutely and get sicker. So most states are going to be open at some phase uh, starting this week and next. So I, I kind of feel like the, the idea that uh, we did this initially to keep the medical system from being overrun has worked, but, you know, you still see the potential for you know, great uh, tragedy and loss in some areas of the United States still. And I, I predict that, you know, as we open up, we, we will see some areas get hit harder in, in different areas of the country. You you mentioned the types of people who are most vulnerable, but what technologies have you seen emerge that can help people in this situation and going forward? Telemedicine has had a huge impact on how we are delivering care now. I, I personally signed up for a company called Teladoc, and so I've been doing uh, mm-hmm. consults with them. But I think that that is a technology that is going to exist for years to come. Uh, it enables us to Uh, utilize physicians that may have retired, but still, you know, are board certified and and still have a great working knowledge of medicine. And so the ability to harness those folks and bring them back into the medical community as practicing physicians is a a great boon from this. I have recently started with a company called uh, uh, Curie Health, which has uh, an artificial uh, intelligence app that monitors 
patient's uh, respiratory status through the microphone on any uh, smartphone or uh, mobile device. And so initially that was uh, used for uh, or has been used for COPD and asthma, but has been adapted to COVID-19. The idea is that a patient would download the app, cure respiratory care on the Apple Store or Play Store, and get your normal breathing pattern. Uh, so that if you do become sick, you would engage the app at a later date and it would have your normal. Other technologies, you know, Bluetooth-enabled devices, are, I think, will be huge in the future because you can essentially set up your own home monitoring system for blood pressure, diabetes, and all these things connect to apps. And that would enable you to you know, send all this data to your physician and not have to do in-person visits. Uh, I also work for Kaiser Permanente. And at this point, they have uh, set up televisits with their physicians. So you, you're not necessarily needing to come into the clinic to have the visit with your doctor. And then any testing or whatever can be set up for you to eliminate that uh, actual in-person visit or uh, prolong and put it off until um, you actually need to see the physician in person. So what you're really talking about is technologies that enable virtual care you think are going to become far more prevalent than they were prior to COVID-19? Oh, definitely. COVID-19 is going to be around for years to come. And as a result, social distancing will still be in place. And uh, we need uh, a way to actually take care of uh, folks without actually having waiting rooms full of people. Telehealth enables us to do that uh, safely and more effectively, uh, especially with an aging population that we don't want out in the public getting exposed to anything. So these um, you know, folks over 60, 65 will be able to shelter in place, stay at home, and not come to the medical facilities where potentially they could run into someone that has uh, COVID-19. And given the fact that the coronavirus, you, you don't show any signs or symptoms for up to seven to 10 days, but you can still expose uh, people to the virus mm-hmm. uh, and get folks infected. This would be very important uh, uh, with respect to treating people. Absolutely. And there are a couple of things to note, I think, for our, our, our listeners. During the states of emergency, uh, HHS has actually uh, allowed for some non-HIPAA compliant synchronous video chat programs to be used because of their ubiquity already. But as the states of emergency are reduced, I think you're going to see a return to the HIPAA compliant telehealth solutions being the norms and what the healthcare system has to engage in to protect patient privacy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we already see, you know, um, with Zoom and these different Zoom meetings that are happening and the Zoom bombers, I think it's going to be important that all of this uh, technology is HIPAA compliant because you, you wouldn't want someone even listening in onto a conversation of a physician with their patients. Great. Just a couple more questions here. I asked you in our last conversation what you think people can do to protect themselves. How would you update that in the world of social distancing, but also where we should be opening up and how people should act to protect themselves? Well, I think it's going to be a personal choice, uh, ultimately, how you choose to, to interact with the world. Folks that have parents that are aging who want to take care of them would have to think about how much exposure do they want to have to the outside world and still, you know, communicate and have personal interaction with folks that are either immunocompromised, 
high risk for getting COVID. So I think that, you know, social distancing is, is here to stay. I believe that uh, people should wear face masks. People have to understand that this illness may not affect me to some degree and, and may not be life-threatening for me as a younger person. But what happens when I get infected and then take that uh, virus, uh, even though I know that I'm not sick at the time, but I can still spread it to people in my community. So I think we have to, as a society, think about less on self and more about the health of our society as a whole and take that into account as we are interacting with the outside world. What things that you know, can we do personally to limit our exposure and therefore the exposure of people that we love? Absolutely. If we can just think about not only ourselves, but also those around us and whom we might impact, I think society will be better off. And frankly, public health will be better. Exactly. People say, you know, listen to the scientists and not the politicians, right? <laughs> right. When you think about the common sense of this and knowing that this is a highly virulent and easily spreadable virus, when you say, uh, what can I do to limit the transmission, it's, it's very easy. You know, social distancing, wear a mask, hand sanitizer, lots of hand washing, and then think about the gatherings and, and, and where you're going. And, uh, you know, as, the, as things open up, you know, they're saying no, no groups larger than 50, but some places will allow a concert or uh, a, a, a game or funeral or a wedding to go on. And uh, although these are things that Six months ago, we all would have you know, loved and never turned down the opportunity to be a part of moving forward for the next one or two years. These are things that we may have to sacrifice in order to improve the health of, of our community as a whole. You just addressed what my last question was going to be, which is, uh, do you have any other thoughts about what COVID-19 will mean for the future? Well, I, I think until we have a vaccine or a treatment that, that's uh, really viable for this disease, we are going to be living in a society where we won't feel safe going to gatherings of 50 people. Those situations where you are sitting close to 20 folks or standing close to 20 folks at a concert, uh, one person can you know, spread the virus to closest 20, 20 contacts. Those folks go home and spread it to another three or four, and those three or four go out and spread it. So I think mm. that we are going to be living in a society where people really are going to have to think carefully about exposing themselves to environments where there are a large number of people. But, you know, right. uh, one other thing about testing, you can test negative for COVID-19 because your viral load isn't that high one day and two days later, you're positive. So that is not uh, also the end all be all, but we, we do need testing. So I don't want people to have a false sense of security that they test negative once, and that means that they can go on with their normal behavior without thinking that they can't uh, contract the disease or that they won't uh, be showing signs of the disease a couple of days later. Good point. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention was the, the contact tracing, which is going to be very important as well in uh, identifying a person that has tested positive for COVID-19. And then now we need to let everybody know in the past 10 days that they have come into contact with that they are now a person of interest for having contracted the disease. And the, the 10 people that they may have or 20 people that they may have come in contact with. And so I, I understand that 
the estimate is that they're going to need 300,000 folks that are going to be involved in contact tracing, which is something that you can do from home. That is uh, in combination with the vaccine and a treatment option are going to be very important moving forward. Right, right. You, you hit all the, the key points there. I think I'm going to make a, a particular note on contact tracing. We are building out contact tracing into the Karen app and have a new feature coming here in, a, in about a week or so that's in addition to our symptom tracking. And what we're doing is trying to help people around the privacy issue because the Bluetooth-enabled proximity-based contact tracing, the, the issue becomes privacy because you're pairing your phone with somebody else's who may, you may not know, but they may be in your proximity so that they can be notified if you tested positive. What we're doing with the Karen version though is, is more network contact tracing. If you test positive, you can then invite those people that you've been in contact with for the last 10 days to the Karen app. They can then see your symptom tracking results. And then they also can track symptoms immediately in the app. So you end up getting this real world data set where they may show no symptoms, as you mentioned before at first, but then you have a baseline for when they do start showing symptoms, they can go get tested. And then if they test positive, then they would invite the people that they've been in contact with. You don't get the full proximity of people you didn't necessarily know you were in contact with, but you are more likely to have caught it from people that you know, because those are the people you tend to gather with, uh, especially when you have social distancing in place, you're not having a lot of these large gatherings. We're trying to provide a more privacy-oriented and automatic consented-based solution for contact tracing, and then be a contributor to the large data sets and populations that are used for contact tracing going forward. So we're, we're definitely trying to be at the forefront of, of that as well. Yeah, that's an excellent idea, David. Um, you know, very revolutionary in your in your thought process. I, I love that. And unlike other countries, you know, China, uh, South Korea, where it's mandatory that you you know register your phone on these apps, in the United States, it's going to be voluntary. But I would hope that people would understand you know, that the privacy issue is not as important as the public health issue, and being notified that you have come into contact with someone is so important so that you can self-quarantine along those same lines uh, with the uh, Curie application. What we're finding is that uh, COVID-19 pneumonia may have a particular respiratory pattern that our AI would be able to recognize mm. um, prior to you getting tested. So while you're at home using the application, it would identify a, a respiratory pattern that would be synonymous with COVID-19, and then you could get your test in that way you would kind of know that something is going on before needing to get tested. Absolutely. That sounds great. Can you remind our audience how they can get the Curie app? Yeah. So you would just uh, go on to uh, the Apple store, the Play store, you type in Curie, C-U-R-I-E. So uh, it's easily downloadable. It also asks you questions about your COVID-19 status, if you have fever, cough, the application works with both Fitbit and uh, Apple Watch to get your heart rate. So it's kind of gives you a more complete picture of your respiratory health. And it's, you know, still able to be used with COPD and asthma. That sounds outstanding. We have run out of time, Dr. Reeves, as 
always, thank you for joining us here on the Treat Us Right podcast. We definitely want to have you back here uh, in the next couple of months as we continue to transition to what will become a different way of life, I believe, going forward as a result of coronavirus and COVID-19. Yeah, thank you again, uh, Dave, for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Appreciate your insightful questions and comments and stay healthy. And everyone continue to think about our collective society as a whole when we decide to uh, go out public. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Treat Us Right podcast.